Welcome to Hub History, where we go beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 159, Fanny Farmer's Cookbook. Hi, I'm Nikki. This week, we're talking about Boston's matriarch of modern cooking. Foodies may be quick to assume that Julia Child is Greater Boston's original top chef. But decades before Julia launched her career, Fanny Farmer published a cookbook that revolutionized the way that recipes are presented and made cooking accessible to the average homemaker. But before we talk about tablespoons and clam fraps, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. And as a side note, Jake and I are moving this week, so this episode will be on the shorter side, but we hope that next week we'll be back in full force. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is The Complete Guide to Boston's Freedom Trail by Charles Bond. Many of you probably have guests who will be visiting Boston this holiday season. It's hard to find a walking tour in November and December, but on a mild day, it's a wonderful time to explore the city. This book is our go-to for the Freedom Trail. It provides detailed walking instructions and just the right amount of content at each stop. It's small enough to carry it, and if you order it right away, you can definitely study up and impress your friends and family. If you embark on the trail, you'll want to make a few stops along the way to warm up. We recommend Boston Cream Pie at the Omni Parker House, a cup of chowder at the Union Oyster House, and a hearty lunch at the Warren Tavern in Charlestown. All of these sites are uniquely historic with delicious menus. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring Old South Meeting House and the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum's annual Boston Tea Party reenactment on Monday, December 16th. It's one of the best ways to experience Boston's revolutionary history and a great excuse to bust out your colonial insults and curses. The event website describes the evening as such. It's December 16th, and trouble is brewing in Boston. Join us to travel back in time and relive one of the most iconic public protests in American history, the Boston Tea Party. First, gather at Old South Meeting House, the actual historic landmark where the colonists met in 1773, with Boston's infamous rabble-rousers like Samuel Adams and Paul Revere, and even some crown-loving loyalists, to debate the tea tax and demand liberty from the British crown. Then, join the fife and drum-led procession to Griffin's Wharf and line the shores of Boston Harbor with scores of colonists to shout huzzah to the Sons of Liberty as they storm the Big Beaver and toss that troublesome tea into the icy waters below. The event schedule is as follows. Meeting of the Body of the People will be held at 6.30 p.m. and tickets are required. Ticket holders join an authentic, spirited, and theatrical colonial meeting at Old South Meeting House to protest the colonial tax on tea, just as unprecedented numbers of colonists gathered in this very building 245 years ago. Friends, brethren, countrymen, free to the public at 6.30 p.m. As the town meeting rages inside of Old South Meeting House, join the crowds outside and hear from a town crier and the women of Colonial Boston as they discuss news of this tea crisis. At 7.30 p.m., huzzah for Griffin's Wharf. This portion of the event is also free to the public, though ticket holders do get prime placement. Led by Fife and Drum Corps, we'll parade through the financial district of Boston and down to the waterfront where Griffin's Wharf once stood. We'll follow the same route the original Patriots walked to Boston Harbor to destroy the tea. And then, at 8 p.m., 
stand side by side with the colonists as we line the shores of Boston Harbor. We'll huzzah as the Sons of Liberty storm aboard the Big Beaver to destroy chest after chest of East India Company tea. We'll include a link with more details in this week's show notes. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Fanny Farmer was born in Boston on March 23, 1857. She had the good fortune to be born into a family that valued education for her and the three sisters that followed. She was on a trajectory towards college, but she suffered what was referred to as a paralytic stroke, but was perhaps polio, at the age of 16 while attending Medford High School. The devastating event derailed her formal academic education. For several years, she was unable to walk and remained in her parents' care at home. During this time, Fanny took up cooking, eventually turning her mother's home into a boarding house that developed a reputation for the quality of the meals it served. Eventually, Fanny regained the ability to walk, though with a pronounced limp. At the age of 30, in 1887, she enrolled in the Boston Cooking School. The school was founded nine years earlier, in 1879, by the Women's Educational Association of Boston to offer instruction in cooking to those who wished to earn their livelihood as cooks or who would make practical use of such information in their families. The idea for the school was first proposed by association member Sarah E. Hooper, who had observed the teaching at London's National School of Cookery. She persuaded the association to authorize $100 to launch a similar school in Boston, and the Boston Cooking School opened its doors at 158.5 Tremont Street, which I believe is by Boston Common, where the movie theater is located today. The first teacher was Joanna Sweeney, who was engaged to teach the normal classes in basic cooking after Mary Lincoln turned down the job because, in her words, I refused to consider the proposition, for while I knew that I could cook, I knew nothing about cooking schools. This matter was dropped, and Miss Joanna Sweeney was engaged as a teacher. And no, not that Mary Lincoln. Tuition was purposefully kept low at $1.50 for six lessons. To cater to upper-class women and their cooks, Maria Parloa was engaged to give lectures and demonstrations of more advanced cookery on alternate Saturdays. In addition to enrolling women who sought education on how to better cook for their families, the school gave women an entry into respectable professional work at a time when more women needed employment, whether they were born into families with limited means or were the wives of successful men who had lost their fortunes. In November 1879, Mary Lincoln was offered the opportunity to take lessons from Miss Sweeney and attend the public demonstration lectures by Maria Parloa, after which she would be hired to teach for six months at a salary of $75 per month. She later wrote, This was a most generous offer, and I felt that if others had so much confidence in me, I certainly ought to be willing to try, and I consented to take the school a month on trial. She continued at the school until 1885, eventually becoming its first principal. She inaugurated a wide variety of special courses and lectures, ranging from free courses for immigrant girls in Boston's North End to special instruction in sick room cookery for nurses from area hospitals. Fanny Farmer trained at the school until 1889, during the height of the domestic service movement, learning what were then considered the most critical elements of the science, including nutrition and diet, techniques of cleaning and sanitation, 
chemical analysis of food, techniques of cooking and baking, and household management. Farmer was considered one of the school's top students. Upon graduating, she was kept on as an assistant to the director, and in 1891, she took the position of school principal. A mere five years later, Fanny Farmer revolutionized the act of cooking with the publication of the Boston Cooking School Cookbook, which later became known simply as the Fanny Farmer Cookbook. In the preface, she writes, Cookery means the knowledge of Medea and Circe and of Helen and the Queen of Sheba. It means the knowledge of all herbs and fruits and balms and spices, and all that is healing and sweet in the fields of groves and savory and meats. It means carefulness and inventiveness and willingness and readiness of appliances. It means the economy of your grandmothers and the science of the modern chemist. It means much testing and no wasting. It means English thoroughness and French art and Arabian hospitality. And, in fine, it means that you are to be perfectly, and always ladies, loaf-givers. But for life the universe were nothing, and all that has life requires nourishment. With the progress of knowledge, the needs of the human body have not been forgotten. During the last decade, much time has been given by scientists to the study of foods and their dietic value, and it is a subject which rightfully should demand much consideration from all. I certainly feel that the time is not far distant when a knowledge of the principles of diet will be an essential part of one's education. Then, mankind will eat to live, will be able to do better mental and physical work, and disease will be less frequent. At the earnest solicitation of educators, pupils, and friends, I have been urged to prepare this book, and I trust it may be a help to many who need its aid. It is my wish that it may not only be looked upon as a compilation of tried and tested recipes, but that it may awaken an interest throughout its condensed scientific knowledge, which will lead to deeper thought and broader study of what to eat. To understand the impact of this cookbook, it's important to consider what Victorian recipes lacked. The measurements were like my grandmother's, a handful of flour, a sprinkle of salt, a good amount of butter. Recipes also often assumed that the reader had a good baseline knowledge already and might begin with make a pie crust. To move cooking forward as a science, Fanny Farmer popularized standard measurements. She explained, Correct measurements are absolutely necessary to ensure the best results. Good judgment, with experience, has taught some to measure by sight, but the majority need definite guides. As a follow-up to the earlier Mrs. Lincoln's Boston Cookbook, published by Mary Lincoln in 1884, this book, under Farmer's Direction, eventually contained 1,850 recipes, from milk toast to clam fraps. And if you are curious, you too can make a clam frap by washing 20 clams thoroughly, changing the water several times, putting them in a stew pan with a half a cup of cold water, covering and steaming until the shells open. You then strain the liquor, cool, and freeze it to a mush. You would serve this in place of your soup course, obviously. Fanny Farmer's New York Times obituary explains how her version of the Boston Cooking School cookbook stood apart from Mary Lincoln's. Earlier books, including previous editions of the Boston Cooking School cookbook, 
assumed that all women were taught basic culinary skills at home, and that they did not need to be told what pie crusts should feel like or how to roast beef. But much of that changed after the Industrial Revolution. Traditional skills like preserving, cheesemaking, and breadmaking ebbed, and Boston and other cities became magnets for new kinds of Americans, single women, young people, and immigrant families, all in need of homes, jobs, and food. Fanny also included essays on housekeeping, cleaning, canning and drying fruits and vegetables, and nutritional information. The book's publisher, Little Brown and Company, did not predict good sales and limited the first edition to 3,000 copies published at the author's expense. Given the low expectations, she was able to retain the copyright. This proved to be wise, as the book was so popular in America, so thorough, and so comprehensive that cooks would refer to later editions simply as the Fanny Farmer cookbook, and it's still available in print today. Farmer provided scientific explanations of the chemical processes that occur in food during cooking, and also helped to standardize the system of measurements used in cooking in the U.S. Before the cookbook's publication, other American recipes frequently called for amounts such as a piece of butter the size of an egg or a teacup of milk. Farmer's systemic discussion of measurement, a cupful is a measured level, a tablespoonful is a measured level, a teaspoonful is a measured level, led to her being named the mother of level measurements. The Library of Congress web archives contains a brief biography that details Fanny's post-Boston cooking school decades. In 1902, Farmer resigned her position to open Miss Farmer's School of Cookery. Though she placed greater emphasis on teaching housewives and society women than training women to earn a living, she eventually focused on the subject of healthy diets for the sick and diseased. She trained hospital dietitians and nurses and gave regular lectures at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Elliot P. Joslin, the medical pioneer in diabetes research and treatment, knew of Farmer's work and cited her in a letter dated just days before his death as the stimulus which started me in writing about diabetes. In 1904, Farmer published what she considered her most important work and upon which she thought her reputation would rest, Food and Cookery for the Sick and Convalescent. Dedicated to her mother and intended for mothers and trained nurses alike, the book takes its epigraph from Florence Nightingale. A good sick cook will save the digestion half its work. The cookbook begins like a treatise, with chapters on the classification, composition, nutritional value, and digestibility of foods, including a discussion of the digestive system. It covers infant feeding, endorsing breastfeeding and stating that many impoverished children would not survive on bottle feeding, children's diets, the use of alcohol, how to prepare a large variety of common foods, and diets for specific diseases, including a remarkable chapter on diabetes. Overall, the book reveals farmers' touching intimacy and sympathy for the invalid's needs, something she knew firsthand. The invalid's tray should be orderly, cheerful, and with small portions in dainty china. A heart-shaped bread-and-butter sandwich will be eaten when the slice of bread and ball of butter would not. She writes, Men and women are certainly but children of an older growth, which fact is especially emphasized during times of sickness and suffering.
For the rest of her years, Farmer maintained at her cooking school, holding weekly lectures that were well-attended and widely reported in the press, and lecturing to women's clubs throughout the country. Always testing and inventing new recipes, she would attend top restaurants in Boston and New York to learn new dishes. If her talent to analyze a flavor failed to identify a certain taste and the chef refused to reveal his secret, she would reportedly take a sample back to the cooking school laboratory to analyze further. She wrote many cookbooks and pamphlets, and in the last 10 years of her life, wrote and edited a cookery page for Women's Home Companion with the help of her sister, Cora Dexter Farmer Perkins. In her last years, she suffered two strokes and needed to use a wheelchair, but she continued to lecture up until 10 days before her death. She died in Boston, and her ashes were buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery in nearby Cambridge. Her school continued, led by Alice Bradley, until its closing in 1944. As you work through your holiday shopping list, consider the Fanny Farmer cookbook for that person you know who loves to try a new recipe. He or she will be among good company, as the New York Times obituary includes the following endorsement. Julia Child, one of the only American cooks to become as widely influential as Farmer, said that the Boston Cooking School cookbook was the primary reference in her own mother's kitchen, and that she cut her teeth as a cook on its pancakes, popovers, and fudge recipes. Both women were famous as teachers and writers, not as brilliant cooks. Child and Farmer were considered unusual in their time. Both were ambitious, charismatic media titans, purveyors of domestic wisdom who led unconventional domestic lives, and privileged women from old New England families with a strong sense of how things ought to be done. To learn more about Fanny Farmer and her cookbook, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 159. We'll have links to a few recipes, an episode of the Documents That Changed the World podcast that features the cookbook, Mary Lincoln's Good Housekeeping article, and of course, a link to purchase the cookbook. We'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the Complete Guide to Boston's Freedom Trail, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before I sign off, I want to take a moment to thank our Patreon sponsors, whose support enables us to invest in the technology needed to produce weekly episodes. To become a supporter, you can learn more at patreon.com slash hubhistory. If you want to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcasting apps, including Google Podcasts and Google Play Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more apps. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating and reviewing us. That helps us show up higher in the podcast rankings, where people can find us more easily. 
If you write us a review, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of our appreciation. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is truly the best way to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about the song Over the River and Through the Woods, which started out as a Thanksgiving carol with Boston roots.